This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 53 of the History Files for the third week of May, 2016. I'm Gordon Fry. And I'm Nancy Fry. We're lining up some great guests for future episodes, just juggling people's schedules and indoctrinating various Luddites into the Skype tech thing, but it'll be definitely worth the wait, I think. In the meantime, it's getting to be spring here in the Pacific Northwest, where a young man's thoughts turn to international incidents over wandering livestock. But before we jump into that, here are a few historical headlines. May 16, 1866, the first U.S. nickel, a five-cent coin comprised of 75% copper and 25% nickel, was issued by the United States Mint. The silver half-dime had been in circulation since the 1790s, but economic hardship caused by the Civil War drove gold and silver from circulation, prompting the U.S. government to issue low-value coins. May 16, 1929, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences hold their first awards presentation event at the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood, California, honoring the best films of 1927 and 28. Unlike today's huge auditorium events with stage shows and multimedia presentations, the first ceremony was a private dinner hosted by Douglas Fairbanks. Tickets were $5, that's $69 in today's dollars, The presentation ceremony lasted 15 minutes, and this was the only Academy Awards ceremony not to be broadcast over radio or television. Winners included Sunrise for Unique and Artistic Picture, while Wings, a wonderful film, catch it if you can, won for Outstanding Picture, the award today known as Best Picture. Um, A little interesting side note, a good friend of ours... Um, Richard Bradley, his grandfather was one of the founding members of the uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Scientists, Richard Bartlemus. Absolutely. I was just going to say that. Yeah. So, good. May fifteenth, 1961, Whispering Smith premiered, featuring the first TV police detective to use modern techniques in the Old West. Loosely based on a 1948 film of the same name, it starred Audie Murphy as a police detective in the 1870s Denver. Despite the setting, it was pretty much a hard-boiled detective show and raised eyebrows with its violent storylines. The production suffered so many setbacks due to on-set injuries, criticism of the on-screen violence, and scheduling mishaps that it didn't survive its first season. One thing I wanted to mention is that, oh, about 10 years later, was a similar type television show um, called Heck Ramsey, mm. starring Richard Boone, also a this time an old-time cowboy and gunslinger type using modern detective techniques in the la- latter days of the Old West. 
May 18th, 1980. We're not going too, back too far for this one. Mount St. Helens, a previously dormant, beautifully cone-shaped volcano in South Washington State that had been showing signs of renewed activity, explosively erupted. Until 8.32 a.m. on that Sunday morning, there had been no significant volcanic eruptions in the contiguous 48 United States since the 1915 eruption of Mount Lassen in California. The subsequent Sub, excuse me, subsequent ash cloud rained down on 11 states, but the serious damage and loss of life and property was caused by the catastrophic lahars, caused by the instant melting of glaciers, ice, and snow that reached as far as the Columbia River, nearly 50 miles away. The summit had been owned by the Burlington Northern Railroad, but passed to the U.S. Forest Service. The area of virtual moonscape for many years is recovering nicely now and is now preserved as the Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument, which we've visited several times. It's actually not far from us, so it's um, of particular import. And I remember that day. But uh, you do. Yeah, I was a wee little sea scout. We were over at Sandpoint Naval Base on Lake Washington. We were marching back from breakfast, back down to the docks to our boat, and heard this bizarre, like, double sonic boom. And we all looked up in the sky, and like, are there jets flying around? No, didn't see any fighter jets, and didn't think anything of it. And then a little while later, we went back up to the hall for church, and uh, this was a regional Sea Scout event, and so there were a lot of people up from Vancouver and Portland, and uh, one of the officers got up and made an announcement. I, I regret to say that those of you who are going to be attempting to get back to Portland today are going to have to find alternate routes home because Mount St. Helens has erupted. The highway is closed. The highway is flooded because, of course, those lahars came down the what, Cowlitz River and just took everything out. A tool. Or the Tootle, that's right, duh, the Tootle River, and just messed everything up. It was awful. It was awful. To this day, you can see the huge, huge ash piles that they've had to dredge out to, to clean up that river to make it usable again. So anyway, it definitely had an impact, and I remember we could see even way up here in Puget Sound area, we could see that ash cloud going up, and it was kind of scary. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. For our media section, first off I want to take a, another look at the upcoming Battlefield 1 game. Uh, there's a really good little synopsis of that and uh, overview on the Great War uh, channel on YouTube. Uh, the guys do a really good job of dissecting at least the trailer for Great War One, and it looks like it ought to be uh, uh, have a lot of good historical accuracy. But from Battlefield yeah. One, yeah, yeah. If you recall, if you listened to our last week's episode, we mentioned that EA was going to be releasing this fall the uh, new edition of Battlefield. This time, they're going back in time to World War One, and so yeah, the, so these Great War guys have done a, an even better in-depth look at it, kind of picking it apart. So check that out on YouTube. Also uh, streaming right now on Netflix is Ken Burns' classic 1990 documentary, The Civil War. 
It's uh, in much imitated style ever since. It still holds up with its minor flaws. One of my picky picks with it is that sometimes they'll be talking about something and the image they will show has nothing to do with what they're talking about. So it's kind of bizarre. But brilliant voiceovers by big name actors. And this one really sets the tone for all documentaries, you know, miniseries PBS slash documentaries that have come since, and he's the guy. It's definitely a tour de force. Yeah, so I'll have a link to that. Um, also streaming on Netflix right now is John Ford's 1962 classic western, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. This was Valance. Valance. They always say Liberty Valance. Oh, you can tell I've never seen it. It's embarrassing. This was Ford's, John Ford's final film, starring John Wayne. It also stars Vera Miles, James Stewart, Lee Marvin as Liberty Valance. Yeah, the song at least says, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Oh, He okay. was the bravest of them all. Oh. Et cetera, et cetera. Finally, it seems as though Captain James Cook's Endeavor, HMS Endeavor, has been found off the coast of uh, Rhode Island. Wow. Thanks to John Matthews for submitting this story to us via Twitter. Uh, it seems as though after Endeavor managed, uh, in its uh, first round the world tour and the discovery, the rediscovery, I should say, by Europeans of both New Zealand and Van Diemen's Land, a.k.a. Australia, uh, it was sold because it had been damaged pretty heavily when they when they grounded it on the Great Barrier Reef. Oops. Um, managed to get it off and get it repaired and sail home, but it still was damaged. It was sold, and um, just in time for the outbreak of the American Revolution, it was resold to the Royal Navy after having an, its name changed uh, to Earl of Sandwich. It started out Lord something or another and then hmm. turned to Endeavor and then Earl of Sandwich, at which point it was taken to the colonies and formed one of uh, 13 or 14 um, ships that were sunk off of uh, uh, off of Rhode, uh, Island. Rhode Island, yeah, Newport, Rhode Island, to to try to um, for a blockade. Yeah, as a blockade, basically just before the Battle of uh, Newport. Hmm. Anyway, uh, so the Rhode Island Maritime. R-I-M-I-T, I mean, whatever, the, I can't recall what their exact thing Anyway, for. the organization. The organization, anyway, they found it. They did use some deep sea imaging, and um, they got also, because of Endeavor's extraordinary relationship and importance to Australia, they got some funding also from Australia for this. Oh, nice. And so all those ships have, have American historical importance. This particular ship, Endeavour, has particular importance to Australia. One interesting note was that Endeavour only had one uh, cabin within it that Captain Cook could actually stand up in. He was over six feet tall, and the great cabin, which is usually the captain's cabin, uh, was the only room he could stand up in, but he rather graciously gave that up to the scientists so that they could use that as their primary room for their research materials and discussions and things like that. So he was an absolutely phenomenal navigator and sailor. And uh, anyway, I hope that things go well for the archaeologists, the underwater archaeologists dealing with this. 
And if you'd like to learn more about things like the early days of the U.S. film industry, why not pick up Joseph P. Kennedy Presents, His Hollywood Years by Carrie Beecham. Head over to audible.com where members of the History Files audience can pick up this book as a free audio download with a free 30-day trial for new listeners. Visit www.audibletrial.com slash historyfiles to take advantage of this offer. With over 180,000 titles to choose from across all genres, you're going to find something you love, including Eruption, the Untold Story of Mount St. Helens by Steve Olson. History lives again. Today's main topic is the Pig War a comic opera war in 1859 between the United States and Great Britain over a minor island in a far-flung province of the old Oregon Territory. Disagreement concerning the actual sovereign ownership of the island, instigated by the death of a British pig at the hands of an American farmer, swelled into an international incident with calls for war from both sides. Luckily for everyone concerned, cooler heads prevailed in the long run, although it did lead to the occupation for another 12 years by British troops of what eventually was deemed to be American soil. The origins of the Pig War go back to the earliest days of exploration in the Pacific Northwest of the North American continent. England put in an early claim with Sir Francis Drake's exploration of the area in the late 1570s. The name of the waterway separating Vancouver Island from Washington State's Olympic Peninsula is named the Straits of Juan de Fuca in remembrance of a Greek pilot who claimed to have been captured by Drake off a Spanish ship and forced to lead Drake's golden hind into previously unexplored waters. Spain quickly followed up on this and extended her own claim for the region, but little was done with the area by Europeans for the next several hundred years. The late 18th century saw renewed interest in discovery, this time with a far more scientific bent famously acted upon by the Royal Britannic Navy and Captain Cook, later followed up by Cook's lieutenant, George Vancouver. In 1792, an expedition under the command of Vancouver entered the Straits of Juan de Fuca after having stopped off the coast near Cape Flattery to converse with Captain Robert Gray of the Columbia. It's not John, as I mistakenly said in an earlier episode, it's Robert Gray. My apologies on that one. Anyway, uh, Gray went off to discover and claim the Columbia River for the United States after that meeting. Britain had recently run, won the right to the ownership of what is now Vancouver Island through negotiations with Spain following the Nootka Crisis of 1789, in which ships of the British Navy were ordered to depart Nootka Sound by officers of the Spanish Navy, who held that to be their territory. Vancouver in cooperation with Juan Francisco Bodega y Cuadra, explored the coast of what was uh, at that point named Cuadra and Vancouver Island. There was a small Spanish settlement at Nootka Sound already, and Vancouver took over the official possession of that settlement. You know, there is a Cuadra Island up in the Canadian Sound Wands now still. Exactly, yeah. And now I know who it's named after. Yep. Uh, interestingly, at least on a personal note, when I was a kid... My grandparents lived in Bodega Bay in Northern California. It's kind of interesting. I live near uh, Quadra Island, <laughs> or Quadra y Vancouver, Las Islas de Quadra y Vancouver, as an adult. At any rate, 
At at Nootka Sound, Vancouver again met with Gray, who confirmed to him that there was indeed a major river to the south, and Vancouver sent one of his officers to make some maps of the area. At approximately the same time, 1789, a small exploration party under the command of Alexander Mackenzie, later Sir Alexander Mackenzie, who was then an employee of the Northwest Company and officially posted to Fort Chippewyan and Lake Athabasca, presently in the Northwest Territories of Canada, had followed a hunch of his superior, Peter Pond, and explored a major river leading out of Great Slave Lake in the hopes that it would lead to the Cook Inlet in Alaska. Instead, it proved to be the largest river in the Great North and the Mackenzie River, which, uh, and this is the Mackenzie River, which instead leads to the Arctic. In 1792, however, Mackenzie was sure that following the Peace River would lead to a route to the Pacific. With six of his voyageurs, he ascended the river and crossed the Continental Divide to the headwaters of the Fraser. Finding it just a little bit too rough for their canoes, they struck out overland, and on July 22nd of 1793, just 48 days after Vancouver had been there on his second trip, they gained the mouth of the Bella Coola River and became the first to cross the continent north of Mexico. This added further substance to the British claims in the area, now referred to as the Oregon Territory, after the fanciful River Oregon, which was said to flow there. So where did that name come from, Oregon? That's a good question. I, I should know this. Huh. Um, I don't remember. I'll put a note in, and we'll see if we can find something, and if we do, I'll stick it in the notes. Yeah, sounds good. I know it goes quite a ways back, though. Uh, certainly to the 1760s, they were talking about this River Oregon hmm. in the in the West. So it was like a mythical place? Yeah, it's sort of like with the Straits of Anian, which were supposed to be the Northwest Passage and all that sort of ah, thing. okay. One of the interesting things about the British exploration of the area especially that of Vancouver, is that almost all of the place names of the Puget Sound area, with some major exceptions, were given by Vancouver while making his maps. Puget Sound itself is named after Lieutenant Peter Puget, Hood Canal after Admiral Sir Samuel Hood, Mount Baker after Lieutenant Baker, Joseph Baker, who had first spotted it, and even the Straits of Juan de Fuca, due to that Greek pilot's centuries-old claim of having discovered it with Drake. Vancouver Island is, of course, named after the captain himself, and the Straits of Georgia were named after the king, George III. American naval officer Charles Wilkes's expedition of exploration in 1841 named most of the rest of them. A decade-plus later, the American overland exploration of Lewis and Clark and their Corps of Discovery made it to the mouth of the Columbia River and reestablished the claim that Robert Gray had made in the area for the United States. At the same time, the Russians, in the form of the Russian-American Fur Company, were making expeditions to the south in pursuit of the sea otter, which was so highly prized by the Manchu court of China from their posts in Alaska. In 1812, they established Fort Ross some 15 miles north of Bodega Bay, and now there were four major claimants on the region, Spain, Russia, Britain, and the United States. In 1821, Mexico declared independence, from, uh, from Spain and put an end to Spain's claims in the Northwest. Twenty years later, the Russian-American Fur Company sold Fort Ross to the Swiss entrepreneur and colonist Johann Sutter in 1841 and confined their efforts to the solidly claimed Alaskan province. 
The Anglo-American Convention of 1818 established the concept of joint occupancy or joint occupation of the Oregon Territory, and with the signing of the Adams-Onis Treaty of 1820, the northern border of California was established. The Oregon Territory now consisted of the present-day territory of the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, as well as the province of British Columbia. The British-based Hudson's Bay Company had established a major post at Fort Vancouver in 1824 on the north bank of the Columbia River, and the settlement nearby of former employees of that company began to be encouraged. By the late 1830s, though, Americans had begun to settle in the nearby Willamette Valley as well. The Willamette, of course, runs into the Columbia River. By the early 1840s, it was becoming fairly obvious to all that there were more Americans in the territory south of the Columbia than British subjects, and that these Americans were also heading into areas further to the north. Enter the 11th President of the United States, James K. Polk. The Democratic Party for, the, um, for 1845 was um, quite honest and forthright in his campaign promises. He promised not only to ease the burden of exporters by lowering the tariff, he also promised to remove the federal government from doing business with commercial banks, but most importantly was his discussion to extend the territory of the United States by acquiring San Francisco Bay from Mexico and settling the Oregon question with Great Britain, of course, to the United States' uh, profit. He's probably the only president in U.S. history and maybe <laughs> maybe the only president in world history to actually fulfill his campaign promises. Although he would have preferred to buy it, he was only successful with, in the acquisition of San Francisco Bay from Mexico by fighting a major war from 1846 to 48 to do so. And in the process, he took not only California, but also Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and parts of Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming in the process. He was far more successful in negotiating with Brit Great Britain over the Oregon question, however. Great Britain, being perhaps the most po powerful nation in the world at the time, may have had something to do with it, but perhaps the idea of fighting both Mexico and Great Britain at the same time uh, was more of a, a persuasive argument. American self-confidence of that day and age was pretty darn impressive. Despite the slogans of such things as 54-40 or fight used by some of Polk's supporters, I don't think Polk had any intention of actually fighting over the Oregon Territory. That the U.S. was at the point a major factor in feeding Britain through the output of our farms, and we were also getting ready to provoke a war with Mexico, war with Britain was a pretty unlikely scenario. The British also had, at this point, concluded that the Columbia River was really not all that great an entrance to the interior due to the mouth being very rough and dangerous a passage. The major center for administration of the Hudson's Bay Company's activities throughout the area were being transferred north to Fort Vancouver, pardon me, to Fort Victoria on Vancouver Island, and the local officials at least saw the writing on the wall. With some solid negotiations, by June of 1846, the Oregon, the Oregon Treaty had been signed and the territory was separated by the simple process of extending the border as it already existed from the Anglo-American Convention's decision of 1818 along the 49th parallel to the Pacific Ocean. It was a nice and tidy decision except for a few minor details.
The first issue was that the Pacific Ocean didn't go clear to the main, into the mainland. Where the 49th parallel emerges and, and it hits salt water in the Straits of Georgia, instead between the mainland and Vancouver Island. This was acknowledged with the provision that Vancouver Island, in its entirety, would be kept by Great Britain and allowed that the border would, be, would equally divide the Straits of Juan de Fuca. The other awkwardness was exactly how to thread the border between the islands which populate the inland waterways from the present-day Canadian Straits of Georgia. The treaty stated that the border would follow the deepest channel between Vancouver Island and the mainland. The problem was deciding which of the various channels, three of which were used for shipping, was the deepest one. Yeah, there's a lot of islands in there. <laughs> there's a lot of islands and, like I said, three major channels that could be chosen from. There was also a provision in the treaty for the Hudson's Bay Company's subsidiary, the Puget Sound Agricultural Company, to retain their rights and properties to the north of the Columbia, and herein came the proximate cause of the Pig War. The present-day San Juan Islands form a beautiful and attractive location for settlement, and they are today, in fact, a very popular tourist destination. On San Juan Island, the, nearest, the island nearest Vancouver Island of those in question, a few Americans had settled along with several employees of the Puget Sound Agricultural Company. In June of 1859, one Lyman Cutlar, an American, developed a recurring problem with a pig belonging to an Irishman named Charles Griffin. Unfortunately, the pig was fond of rooting up potatoes from Cutler's garden. Cutler, in exasperation, shot said pig and then offered Griffin $10 for having done so. Griffin demanded $100, at which point Cutler stated that since the pig was trespassing, he wasn't liable for any damages at all. Griffin responded by in, <clears throat> in turn sending word to Victoria to dispatch a constable to come and arrest Cutler, whereupon American settlers called upon the U.S. Army to come to their defense. This is where things get interesting. Brigadier General William S. Harney, an American of strong Irish extraction, commanding the Department of Oregon, sent a company of the 9th Infantry under Captain George Pickett, yes, that George Pickett of Gettysburg fame and Pickett's charge, to San Juan Island to calm the situation by preventing the British from landing any sailors or marines. The British then responded by sending Captain Jeffrey Hornby of the Royal Navy with three smaller warships to counter the American move to militarize the island. Further response was then made by Harney, who dispatched Colonel Silas Casey to the island with artillerymen from Fort Stillicum and in present-day Tacoma, Washington. By August, there were some 460 or so American soldiers with artillery facing five British warships. The governors of both Washington Territory, Isaac Stevens, and British Columbia, James Douglas, did their very best to exacerbate things. Douglas even ordered Rear Admiral Robert Baines of the Royal Navy to land Marines on the island and eject the Americans. Baines flatly refused, stating that it would be criminal to begin a war between two great nations over the squabble about a pig. I have actually heard that it's, you know, two great nations over a goddamn pig. <laughs> Language alert. Language alert. Uh, yes. It, well, he was, a, he was a sailor and could be earthy. 
Commanders were ordered to defend themselves, but under no circumstances to fire the first shot. Supposedly insults were exchanged, but luckily no lead. When word reached the respective capitals that war had almost broken out over a pig, efforts were quickly made by cooler heads, which thankfully prevailed, to de-escalate the situation. Then President James Buchanan sent the commanding general of the United States Army, Winfield Scott, hero of the War of 1812, victor of the Mexican War, and now in his late 70s, the commander of the American Army, to see to the negotiations. Traveling via the Isthmus of Panama, Scott arrived in Fort Townsend, right next to the present-day Port Townsend, but it was down Fort Townsend, in October, four months after the inciting incident, and began friendly negotiations with Baines. Finally, after consulting with Douglas, an agreement was made to jointly occupy San Juan Island until an arbitrated settlement could be made, and some hundred troops from each side would continue to occupy the island until that time. They settled into English camp and American camp for the next 12 years. And you can visit those sites today. They're part of the park system now. Absolutely. Uh, the United States National Park Service has uh, especially English camp. It, it, it's been very well uh, reconstructed and what's still there has been preserved. And in fact, one of the... Uh, one of the rangers there, a fellow named Mike Vuri, has written a couple of really good books, excellent books, I should say, on both the occupation and the pig war itself. I think for this episode, we'll definitely have a supplemental entry over on Gordon's blog, and I'll have some pictures and different thingies about the pig war over there, because they actually they used to do reenactments, and it used to be quite a, quite a lot good time, so we'll see what it, we can throw on there. Of interest is the fact that English Camp, which was, of course, occupied by the Royal Marine Light Infantry, is in a beautifully located site with balmy weather and spacious grounds. American Camp, on the other hand, which was occupied by the 9th Infantry, was on a site selected by Colonel Casey. It's ugly, but very, very defendable. As well, it's amusing to note that during the joint occupation for the next 12 years of the island, the two garrisons spent a fair amount of time in, <laughs> involved in social interaction with picnics and dances being shared between them. What a stressful duty it must have been for all concerned. When thinking about this incident, it's necessary, though, to also consider that there were other issues going on between the U.S. and Great Britain in the Pacific Northwest at the same time. The Fraser River Gold Strike in 1858 had led to a huge number of Americans pouring into British Columbia. This led to Ned McGowan's War, which is an even smaller blip on the radar of war than the Pig War. It was pretty much a non-event, but there was a great deal of uh, concern elicited from that. This led to Her Majesty the Queen's government sending out a, the Royal Engineers Columbia Detachment to act as a sort of break on the unrest in the mining district. There was talk of a filibuster, filibuster being an American version of a Spanish version of the English word freebooter. Uh, under this fellow Ned Bengowan, a former politician from San Francisco, to take British Columbia from Britain and making it an American territory. Colonel Richard Moody of the Royal Engineers managed through deft diplomacy 
to diffuse the situation, but there was still plenty of stress on the Anglo-American relationship in the Pacific Northwest in the late 1850s, and the Pig War fit right into it. Finally, after the American Civil War had come to its conclusion, and relations between the United States and Britain had normalized after some of the uncertainties of a possible British intervention in that war, it became time to return the, to the diplomatic issues of San Juan Island. The newly installed Emperor of Germany, of the newly minted United German Empire, Kaiser Wilhelm I, was asked to be the arbitrator of the different claims. Taking the new responsibility for an international settlement quite seriously, Kaiser Wilhelm sent a ship of the new German Imperial Navy to investigate the matter. They took their time opting to appeal to the scientific method and taking soundings of the three possible channels, uh, and then when they returned to Berlin, they proceeded to make a 3D map of the seafloor to investigate the issue further. The map was set on gimbals and filled with water. Ink was poured into the headwaters of the model Fraser, and it was followed with great interest as to where it would show the main water flow should occur. The German naval officers concluded that Haro Strait, to the west of San Juan Island, proved to be the primary flow of water to the Pacific, and therefore met the conditions of the 1846 treaty more correctly than Rosario Strait, which is to the east of these islands. By the time the British North America, by this time British North America had become the Dominion of Canada, and although still subject to invasions by Americans, most of them at least have been peaceful in the form of tourism. A final note of interest is that this topographical map that was made by the Germans still exists. For some reason, it was put inside of a wall in a building housing some bureaucracy in Berlin, and by some miracle, it escaped destruction in 1945, and it even escaped the interest of the communists of East Germany as well. A friend of mine said that while on tour there a few years ago, he saw the map and said, hey, that's Puget Sound. Uh, and he was, uh, that netted him an explanation of why. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, but it's still there. It's sort of sideways on a wall, but... Like in a museum somewhere? Or just, or just leaning against a wall in some It's downstairs <laughs> of a museum. Yeah, it's in a museum, huh. but I don't even recall which one. But the map still exists. So there it is, the pig war. An otherwise minor incident that had the possibility of turning into a major war between the United States and Great Britain, all over a pig. Thankfully, other than the pig, no lives were lost in the process. I assume, however, that the pig was put to good use, along with the potatoes that he hadn't already ingested. Well, if you enjoyed this show, be sure to check out our other great offerings over at SciCon, including Coffee with Jeff, Geek Days, and the brand new How to Comic. Show notes for this episode can be found at SciCon.fm slash THF5353. So you can contact us with your questions or comments at historyfilesshow at gmail.com. 
And I want to thank all of our listeners, especially all of you reposters and retweeters. The History Files wouldn't be possible without your support. And special thanks to our patrons. You know who you are. And we think you're awesome. You can also support us and pick up some cool History Files swag by visiting our new store over at Zazzle at www.zazzle.com slash badcatproductions. Of course, we try to do our research and share the most current information on any topic, but we don't claim to be the last word on any subject. So we welcome input from you, especially if you have information that we don't. And I do want to thank our friends over at the uh, Royal Engineers Columbia Detachment. Uh, They're a group in British Columbia that does uh, reenactment of the Royal Engineers Columbia Detachment, and they can be found at www.royalengineers.com, or .ca. C-A. C-A, not com, C-A. They're Canadian. They're Canadian, as well they should be. Yeah. Uh, So a couple of those fellows, I'll give a shout-out to Simon Sobolowski and uh, Tim Watkins, who have done an excellent, excellent job, uh, both with their reenactment and the uh, and the website as well we need to get them on the show sometime we do we'll talk about uh, the columbia detachment there we go so thank you for joining us again this week and uh, please join us again next week for another exciting adventure in the history files the history files is brought to you by bad cat productions a proud member of the Psycon podcast network For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at scicon.fm slash THF. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash scicon, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.